4. Nard, in Russia to Valand, between the Garonne and the Loire. The chief lines of northern advance were three by the northwest, southwest, and northeast, but each of these divided, after a time, with important results. The first sea path, running by Caithness, Orkneys, Shetlands, and Faroes, reached Iceland, Greenland, and at last Vinland on the North American continent, but from the settlements on the coasts and islands of northern Scotland, a fresh wave of pirate colonists swept down southwest into the narrow seas of Street George's Channel and beat upon the east and north and south of Ireland and the western coasts of England and of Bretland. The second invasion ran along the north German coast, and on reaching the Straits of Dover, fell upon both sides of the English Channel, according as the resistance was stronger or weaker in Wessex or in Franklin. The advanced guard reunited with Ostmen and Orkneyers in the Scilly Isles, and in Cornwall and pressed on to the plunder of the Bay of Biscay and its coasts. The most restless of all were not long in finding out the wealth of the Moslem Caliphate of Cordova, and trying to force their way up the Douro and the Tagus. The expansion on this side was not to stop till it had founded, from the Norman colony on the Seine, a Norman kingdom of England, and a dominion in the two Sicilies. But this was the work of the 11th century, the time of organization and settled empire, on the third side of northern expansion to east and northeast. There were two separate roads from the first, one taking the Baltic for its track, and dividing northwards to Finland, up the Gulf of Bothnia, eastwards to Russia and Novgorod, Gardarity, and Homegard. The other coasting along Halogoland to Byarmaland, along Lapland to Perm and the Archangel of later time. Of these three lines of movement by far the most vital to our subject is the first, which is also the earliest, the second, to south and southwest hardly gives any direct results for our story, and the third, to east and north, is mainly concerned with Russian history. While King Alfred was yet unborn, Norse settlements had been permanently founded in the outlying points, coasts, and islands of Scotland and Ireland, and in the years of his boyhood, about 860, Maynard the Fiero Jarl sighted Iceland, which had been touched at by the Irish monks in 795 but was now to be first added as a lasting gain to Europe as a new country, Snowland, something more than a hermitage for religious exiles from the world. Four years later in 864 Gardar the Swede reached this new Ultima Thule, and renamed it from himself, Gardar's home. Yet another Viking, Ravenfloak, followed the track of the first explorer in 867, before Iceland got its final name and earliest Kolanazotion from the Norsemen in Gulf and Life and the sheep farmers of the Pharaohs in 874. The third year of Alfred's reign in Wessex, three years later, 877-8, at the very time of the farthest Danish advance in England, when Guthrum had driven the English king into the Isle of Athelney, the Norsemen reached their farthest point of northern advance in Europe, Dundeorn sighted a new land to the northwest, which he called White Shirt, from its snow fields, and which Red Eric a century later renamed Greenland, for there is nothing like a good name to attract settlers. By this the old world had come nearer than ever before to the discovery of a new one. Geographically, the side of the Arctic continent falls to the share of North America, and once its fjords had been made in their turn centers of Kolonizatayon and of further progress, the actual reaching of Newfoundland and Cape Cod was natural enough. The real voyage lay between Cape Farewell and the European mainland, it was a stormy and dangerous passage from the Greenland bays to a Labrador, but not a long one, and, as far as can be judged from scanty records, neither so cold nor so icebound as at present. 
but exploration had outrun settlement. It was not till 986, more than 100 years after Gundiorm's discovery, that Eric the Red, one of the chiefs of the Iceland colonists, led a band of followers and friends into a permanent exile in the unknown land. The beginnings of several villages were made in the next few years, and the first American discoveries followed at once. About 989 one journey Herjolfsson, following his father from Iceland to Eriksfjord in Greenland, was driven west by storms first to a flat, well-wooded country, then to a mountainous island, covered with glaciers. He bore away with a fresh breeze and reached his home in Eriksfjord in four days, but his report aroused great interest, the time had come, and the men, and Norse rovers, who after so much in the past were ready to dare anything in the future eagerly volunteered to follow up the new route, journey himself visiting Norway and telling his story, was blamed for his slackness, and when he went back to Greenland there was much talk of finding unknown lands, in the year 1000 life, a son of Red Eric, started with a definite purpose of discovery, he bought journey's ship, manned it with five and twenty men and put out, first they came to the land journey had sighted last, and went on shore, there was no grass to be seen, but great snowy ridges far inland, and all the way from the coast to these mountains was one field of snow, and it seemed to them a land of no profit, so they left, calling it Heluland, or Slate Land, perhaps the Labrador of the 16th century, they put to sea again and found another land, flat and wooded, with a white sand shore, low lying towards the sea, this, said life, we will call after its nature, Markland Woodland, thence driving for two days before a northeast wind, they came to an island, where they landed to await for good weather, they tasted the dew on the grass and thought they had never known anything so sweet, sailing on again into a sound between the island and an S, they reached a place where a river came out of a lake, into this they towed the ship and anchored, carrying their beds out on the shore and setting up their tents, with a large hut in the middle, and made all ready for wintering there, there was no want of fish food, the largest salmon in the lake they had ever seen, and the country seemed to them so good that they would need no fodder for cattle in the winter. There was no frost, the grass seemed fresh enough all the year round, and day and night were more equal than in Iceland or in Greenland. The crew were divided into parts, one worked at the huts and the other explored the country, returning every night to the camp. From the wild vines found by the foragers, the whole district was called Vinland, and samples of these enough to fill the stern boat, and of the trees and self-sown wheat found in the fields were taken back to Eriksfjord, thereafter life was called the lucky, and got much wealth and fame, but Torvald Eriksson, his brother, thought he had not explored enough, and determined to be talked about even more than the first settler of Vinland, he put to sea with thirty men and came straight to a life's booths in Vinland, where he stayed the winter, on the first signs of spring Torvald ordered his vessel to be rigged, and sent his longboat on ahead to explore, all alike thought the land beautiful and well-wooded, they noticed that the distance was small between the forest and the sea, that the beach was all of white sand, and that there were many islands off the shore and very shallow water, but they saw no trace of man or beast, except a wooden corn barn on an island far to the west, after coasting all the summer they came back in the autumn to the booths, the next spring Torwald went eastwards, and, towards the north along the land they drove upon a cape and broke their keel and stayed long to a repair, and called the place Keelness Gallerness from this. Then they sailed away eastwards along the country, everywhere thickly wooded, till at one place Torwald drew up his ships to the land and laid out gangways to the shore, saying, I would gladly set out my farm here, 
but now they came upon the first traces of other men, far off upon the white sandy beach three specks were sighted three skin boats of the Screelings or Esquimo, with three men hiding under each. Torwald's men captured and killed eight of them, but one escaped to where within the fjord were several dwellings like little lumps on the ground. A heavy drowsiness now fell upon the Norsemen. In the saga, till a sudden scream came to them, and a countless host from up the fjord came in skin boats and laid themselves alongside. The Vikings put up their shield wall along the gunwale and kept off the arrows of the Esquimo till they had shot them all away, and fled off as fast as they could, leaving Torwald with a mortal wound under the arm. He had time just to bid his men carry him to the point he had wished to dwell at, for it was true that he would stay there a while, but with a cross at head and feet, and so died and was buried as he had said. The place was called Crossness from the dead chief. But the crew stayed all the winter and loaded the ship with vines and grapes, and in the spring came back to Eric in Greenland, and now, after the first mishap, discovery became more serious not to be undertaken but by strong and well-armed fleets. It was this that checked the expansion of these Arctic colonies, at their best they were too small to do more than hold their own against nature and the screeling savages in their tiny settlements along the coast, where the ice fields have long since pushed man slowly but surely into the sea with his painfully won patches of hay and corn and pasturage, but the colonists would never say die till they were utterly worn out, now they only roused themselves to conquer the new lands they had found, and found disputed, first a third son of Red Eric, Thorstein, bethought him to go to Vinland for his brother Torwald's body, he put to sea and lost all sight of land, beating about in the ocean the whole summer, till he came back to Greenland in the first week of winter, 1046. He was followed by the greatest of the Vinland sailors, Thorfinn Karlsson, who really took in hand the founding of a new settlement over the Western Sea. He came from Norway to Iceland soon after Torvald's death in 1004, passed on to Greenland about 1005, when, as before, much was talked about a Vinland voyage, and in 1006 made ready to start with 160 men and 5 women, in 3 ships, they had with them all kinds of cattle meaning to settle in the land if they could, and they made an agreement, Karlsson and his people, that each should have an equal share in the game, life lent them his houses in Vinland, for he would not give them outright, and they sailed first to Helluland Labrador, where they found a quantity of foxes, then to Markland, well stocked with forest animals, then to an island at the mouth of a fjord, and known before, covered with anter ducks, they called the new discovery Stream Island and Stream Fjord, from the current that here ran out into the sea, and sent off a party of eight men, in search of Vinland, in a stern boat, this was driven by westerly gales back to Iceland, but Thorfinn, with the rest, sailed south till he came to a life Eriksson's river that fell into the sea from a lake, with islands lying off the mouth of the stream, low grounds covered with wheat growing wild, and rising grounds clad with vines, here they settled, renamed the country, hope, from the good hope they had of it, and began to fell the wood, to pasture their cattle in the upland, and to gather the grapes. After the first winter the Screelings came upon them, that first to traffic with furs and sables against milk and dairy produce, and then to fight, for as neither understood the other, and the natives tried to force their way into Thorfinn's houses, and to get hold of his men's weapons, a quarrel was bound to come. Fearing this, Karlsson put a fence round the settlement and made all ready for battle and at this very time was a child born to him in the village, called Snor, of Gudrid his wife, the widow of Thorstein Eric's son, whom he had brought with him, 
Then the Esquimo came down upon them, many more than before, and there was a battle, and Thorfinn's men won the day and saved the cattle, and their enemies fled into the forest. Thorfinn stayed all the winter, but towards spring he grew tired of his enterprise, and returned to Greenland, taking much goods, vines, wood for timber, and skin wares, and so came back to Eric's fjord in the summer of 1008. Thus ends the story of the last serious effort to colonize Vinland, and the saga, while giving no definite cause for this failure upon failure, seems to show that even the trifling annoyance of the Skrelings was enough to turn the scale. Natural difficulties were so immense, men were so few, that a pimmy enemy had all the power of the last straw in a load, the odd man in a council. The actual resistance of American natives to European colonists was never very serious in any part of the continent, but the distance from the starting point and the difficulties of life in the new country were able, even in the time of Raleigh and de Soto, to keep in check men who far more readily founded and kept up European empires in the Indian seas. So now, though on Thorfinn's return the talk began to turn again upon a vinland voyage, as both gainful and honorable, and a daughter of Red Eric, named Frades, talked men over especially to brothers, Helge and Finboge to a fresh attempt in the country where all the house of Eric had tried and failed, though life lent his boots as before, and sixty able-bodied men, besides women, were found willing to go. The colony could never be firmly planted. Frades and her allies sailed in 1011, reached the settlement, which was now for the third time recolonized, and wintered there, but jealousy soon broke up the camp. Helge and Finboge were murdered with all their followers and the rest came back in 1013 to Greenland, where Thorfinn Karlsefn was just ready for sailing back to Norway, and it was common talk that never did a richer ship leave Eric's fjord than that which he steered, it was that same Karlsefn who gave the fullest account of all his travels, concludes the saga, but whether Thorfinn ever returned to Vinland, whether there were any more attempts to settle at life's booths or elsewhere, whether the account we had of these voyages is really on Eric's saga, only telling the deeds of Red Eric and his house for after journey. Almost every Vinland leader is of this family we cannot tell. We can only fancy that all these suggestions are probable. By the side of the few additional facts known to the Norse Skalds or Bards, the first of these island that in 983-4, Harmarsson of Reykjans in Iceland was driven by storms far west to a white man's land, where he was followed by Journeus Branson in 999 and by Gudleif Gullumson in 1029. This was the tale of his friend Rafn, the Limerick trader, and of Arfrode, his great-great-grandson, who called the unknown land Great Ireland, true or untrue, in whatever way. This would be a later discovery than those of Eric and his sons, if the news of it did not come into Iceland or Norway till after Thorfinn Karlsefn's voyage, as is generally supposed. Again, the length of the voyage is a difficulty and the whole matter has a doubtful look and attempt to start a rival to the Eric saga. By a far more brilliant success a few years earlier, we seem to be on more certain ground in our next and last chapter of Viking exploration in the Northwest, in the fragmentary notices of Greenland and Vinland voyages to the middle of the 14th century, and in the fairly clear and continuous account of the two Greenland settlements of the Western and the Eastern Bays. We hear, for instance, of Bishop Eric going over from Eric's fjord to Vinland in 1121, of clergy from the Eastern Bay Diocese of Gardar sailing to a lands in the west, far north of Vinland, in 1266, of the two Helgasons discovering a country west of Iceland in 1285, of a voyage from Greenland to Markland in 1347 by a crew of 17 men, recorded in 1354, 
unless these are pure fabrications, they would seem to prove something of constant intercourse between the mother and daughter colonies of Northwest Europe and Northeast America, and something of a permanent Christian settlement of Northmen in the New Continent is made probable by assuming such intercourse. Between 9811000, both Iceland and Greenland had become Catholic in name and Christian in surname. In 1126 the line of bishops of Gardar begins with Arnold and the clergy would hardly have ventured on the Vinland voyage to convert Skrelings in an almost deserted country. The later story of the Greenland colonies, interesting as an island and traceable to the year 1418, is not part of the expansion but of the contraction of Europe and Christendom, and the voyages of the Xenai in 1380-95 to Greenland and the western islands Estoland and Drogio, belong to another part, they are the last achievements of medieval discovery before Henry of Portugal begins his work and form the natural end of an introduction to that work. But it is curious to notice that just as the ice and the Esquimo between them were bringing to an end the last traces of Norse settlement in the Arctic continent, and just as all intercourse between Vinland, Greenland, Iceland, and Norway entirely ceases at any rate to record itself the Portuguese sailors, taking up the work of Eric and Life and Thorfinn, on another side, were rounding Cape Verde and nearing the southern point of Africa and so providing for the mind of Columbus suggestions which resulted in the lasting discovery of the world that the Vikings had sighted and coronized, but were not able to hold, the Venetian, Welsh, and Arabic claims to have followed the Norsemen in visits to America earlier than the voyage of 1492, belong rather to the minute history of geographical controversy. It is a fairly certain fact that the northwest line of Scandinavian migration reached about AD 1000 to Cape Cod and the coasts of Labrador. It is equally certain that on this side the Norsemen never made any further advance, lasting or recorded, against all other medieval discoveries of the western continent. One only verdict can stand, not proven. The other lines of northern advance, though marked by equal daring and far greater military exploits, have less of original discovery. There was fighting in plenty. The giving and taking of hard knocks with every nation from Archangel to Cordova and from Limerick to Constantinople, and the Vikings. As they reached fresh ground, renamed most of the capes and coasts, the rivers and islands and countries of Europe, of North Africa, of Western Asia, Iberia became, Spotland, Galicia, Shakobsland, Galliot, Frankland, Britannia, England, Scotland, Bretland, Hibernia, Ireland, Islam, outside, Spotland, passed into, Circland, or Saracenland, Greece was, Greekland, Russia, Gardariki, the Pillars of Hercules, the Straits of Gibraltar, were, nor the sound, which later days derived from the first Northmen who passed through them. The city of Constantine was the great town, Meekligard, Novgorod was, Homegard, the town of all others that most touched and influenced the earlier, the Viking Age, of northern expansion, for was it not their own proudest and strongest city-state, and, who can stand before God, or the great Novgorod, except the men who had built it, and would rush to sack it if it turned against them? But all this was only the passing of a more active race over ground which had once been well known to our own and to Christendom. Even if much of this was now being forgotten, it was only in upland Russia and in the farthest north that the Norsemen sensibly enlarged the western world to east or northeast, as they did through their Iceland settlements on the northwest, on the south and southwest no Vikings or royalist followers of Vikings, like Sigurd the Crusader, sailed the seas beyond Norvis Sound and Circland, and as pilgrims, traders, travelers, and conquerors in the Mediterranean. Their work was of course not one of exploration, 
they bore a foremost share in breaking down the Muslim incubus on southern Europe, they visited the holy sites, when sacred Hierosolima they relieved and fed their eyes on Jordan's holy flood which the dear body of Lord God had laved, they fought as Barangian bodyguards in the armies, of the great Byzantines, Nikathros Focas, John Simiscus, Basil II, or Maniacs, but in all this they discovered for themselves rather than for Europe, but Russia, that island old Russia round Novgorod and Kiev, the White Sea, the North Cape and Finland coasts, as well as the more outlying parts of Scotland and Ireland, were first clearly known to Europe through the Northmen, the same race did much to open up the modern Lithuania and Prussia, and the conversion of the whole of Scandinavia, mother country and colonies alike, in the 10th and 11th centuries added our Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, with all the Viking settlements, to the civilized world and Church of Rome, first, on the eastern side, it was in 862 that the Russians invited help from their less dreaded neighbors around Uppsala against their more vexatious neighbors around Kiev, and in September of the same year Rurik arrived at Novgorod and founded the medieval kingdom of Russia, which in the 10th century under Oleg, Igor, and Vladimir was first the plunderer, then the open enemy, and finally the alliant faith and in arms of the Byzantine Empire, all through this time and afterwards, till the time of the Tartar deluge. The intercourse of Swedes, Danes, and Northmen with Gardariki was constant and close, and not least in the time of the Vinland voyages, when Vladimir and Jaroslav reigned at Novgorod, and the two Olafs, the son of Trigvan the Saint, found refuge at their court before and after their hard rule in Norway. Olaf Trigvizan's uncle had grown old in exile at Novgorod when young Olaf and his mother fled from Norway to join him there and were captured by Vikings in the Baltic and kept six years in the Gulf of Riga before they got to Homeguard 972. In 1019 Ingegerd of Sweden was married to Jaroslav, ten years later Saint Olaf was driven from Norway by revolt, and flying into Russia, was offered a kingdom called Bulgaria the modern Kassan whose old metropolis of Bulgar was known to the Arab travelers of the 9th century, and whose ruins can still be seen. Olaf hesitated between the Santa Pilgrim's death in Jerusalem and at last preferred to fight his way back to Norway. The next king of the Norsemen, Magnus the Good, came from Novgorod by Ladoga to Trondheim, when Olaf's son Harald Hardrada fled back to his father's refuge, to the court of Jaroslav, while Magnus had been in exile. Men had asked news of him from all the merchants that traded to Novgorod. Last of these earlier kings, Harald Hardrada, during all the time of his wild romance in East and South, before he went to Nikligard, and after his flight, and all the time of his service in the Barangian Guard of the Empress Zoe, made Novgorod his home, his pilgrim relics from Holy Land and his war spoils from Circland Africa and Sicily were all sent back to Jaroslav's care till their master could come and claim them and when he came at last, flying from Byzantine vengeance across the Black Sea into the Sea of Azov and all round the eastern realm of Kiev, he found his wealth untouched and Princess Elizabeth ready to be his wife and to help him with Russian men and money to win back Norway and to die at Stamford Bridge for the crown of England 1066. Harold is the type of all Vikings, of the Norse race in its greatest, most restless energy, William the Conqueror, Orknet the Great, or Robert Giscard or Roger of Sicily, are all greater and stronger men, but there is no, danger, no rover, like the man who in fifty years, after fighting in well nigh every land of Christians or of the neighbors and enemies of Christendom, 
yet hoped for time to sail off to the newfound countries and so fulfill his oath and promise to perfect a life of unmatched adventure by unmatched discovery. He had fought with wild beasts in the arena of Constantinople, he had bathed in the Jordan and cleared the Syrian roads of robbers, he had stormed eighty castles in Africa, he had succored the Icelanders in famine and lived as a prince in Russia and Northumberland, by his own songs he boasts that he had sailed all round Europe, but he fell. The prototype of sea kings like Drake or Magellan, without one discovery, men of his own nation and time had been before him everywhere, but he united in himself the work and adventures, the conquests and discoveries of many. He was the incarnation of northern spirit, and it was through the lives and records of such as he that Europe became filled with that new energy of thought and action, that new life and knowledge, which was the ground and impulse of the movement led by Henry the Navigator, by Columbus, and the Cabots. Harold's wars kept him from becoming a great explorer, but Norse captains who took service under peaceful kings did something of what he aimed at doing. We must retrace our steps to the voyages of Ophir and Wolfstone under King Alfred about the year 890, about the time when a Norse king, Harold Fairhair, was first seen in the Scotch and Irish seas, their discovery of the White Sea, the North Cape, and the gulfs of Bothnia and Finland was followed up by many Norsemen such as Thorhund under St. Olaf, in the next 150 years, but Othier's voyage was the first and chief of these adventures both in motive and result. He told his lord King Alfred that he dwelled north most of all Northmen on the land by the western sea and he wished to find how far the land lay right north, or whether any man dwelled north of the waste. So he went right north near the land, for three days he left the waste land on the right and the wide sea on the left as far as the whale hunters ever go, and still he kept north three days more to the north cape of Europe, then the land bent right east, and with a west wind he sailed four days till the land bent south, and he sailed by it five days more to a great river the Dwina that lay up into the land, and where beyond the river it was all inhabited, the modern country of Perm and Archangel, here he trafficked with the people, the first he had met, except the Finn hunters, since leaving his fjord, besides his wish to see the country, he was looking for walrus ivory and hides, the Finns and Byarmum and men of Archangel, it seemed to him, spoke nearly the same language, but between his home and the Byarmaland no human being lived in any fixed dwelling, and all the Northmen's land was long and narrow and thinly peopled, decreasing in breadth as it stretched northward, from sixty to three days journey, again Alfred told how Othier, sailing south for a month from his house, having Ireland on his right and coasting Norway all the time on his left, came to Jutland, where a great sea runs up into the land, so vast that no man can see across it. Once in five days more he reached the coast, from which the English came to Britain. Wollstone, in the service of the same king, told him how he sailed in seven days from Sleswick to Truzo and the Vistula, having Windland or Pomerania and Prussia on his right all the way. He described, Wigland near the Vistula and Eastland and Wendland and Astmere and the Ilfing running from the Truzo Lake into Eastmere, but neither the kin nor his captains knew enough to contradict the old idea, found in Ptolemy and Strabo, of Scandinavia as one vast island. Thus it was for the satisfaction of their Saxon lord that Wolfstone and Othier, by their voyages along the coasts of Norway and Lapland, of Pomerania and Prussia, round the White Sea and the Gulf of Riga and southern Finland, added a more coherent view of Northeast Europe, and specially of the Baltic Gulf, to a Western geography, but these Norse discoveries, though in the service of an English king, were scarcely used save by Norsemen, and they must partly go to the credit of Vikings, 
as well as of Alfred the Great. Thus in 965 King Harald Grayskin of Norway went and fought with the folk on the banks of the Dwina, and plundered them. And in 1026 Thorhund joined himself to a fleet sent by Saint Olaf to the White Sea, pillaged the temple of the idol Jamala, and destroyed his countrymen by treachery on their way home. Where two expeditions are recorded they may well stand for twenty unknown and uneventful ones, and the same must be equally granted as to the gradual advance of knowledge through the unceasing attacks of the Norse kings and pirates on the lands to the south of the Baltic, where live the winds, thus on the west and east, northwest and northeast. The Northmen could and did make a definite advance into the unknown, even the southwest lines of northern invasion and settlement, though they hardly yield any general results to discovery certainly led to a more thorough inclusion of every part of the British Isles in the civilized West, through the Viking earldoms in Caithness, in the Orkneys and the Shetlands, in Man and the Hebrides, and on the coast of Ireland, where the Ostman colonies grew into kingdoms, from about 840, when the first of these settlements was fairly and permanently started, to the 11th century, when a series of great defeats, by Brian Borough at Clontarf in 1014, by Godwine and Harold in England from 1040 to 1066, and by the Norman and Scottish kings in the next generation, practically destroyed the Norse dominion outside the Orkneys. For those 200 years, Danes and Northmen not only pillaged and colonized, but ruled and reorganized a good half of the British Isles. By the time of Alfred the Viking principalities were scattered up and down the northern and western coasts of the greater of our two islands, and were fringing three sides of the lesser. About A.D. 900 the pioneer of the Norse kings, Harold Fairhair, pursued his traitors, first to Shetlands and Orkneys, then to Caithness, the Hebrides, and Man, his son Eric, who followed him, ranged the northern seas from Archangel to Bordeaux, and so Hakon the Good in 936 and other Norse princes in 946, 961, 965, above all. The two great kings Olaf in 985-9 and 1009-14, fought and triumphed through most of the world as known to the Northmen. Thus, Franklin, England, Ireland, Scotland were brought into a closer unity through the common danger, while as the sea kings founded settled states, and these grew by alliance, first with one another and then with their older Christian victims, as the Norse kingdoms themselves became parts of Latin Christendom. After Latin Christendom had itself been revived and reawakened by their attacks, the full value of the time of trial came out on both sides, to conquer a